Good morning and welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is Sunday, August 24th. We're so glad for all of you who have joined us in person and those who are joining us online, either live right now or joining us in the next couple hours or days. Our scripture today is from 1 Kings 19, 1 through 8. And it is about, well, my favorite prophet, Elijah. Uh, to put this into context, uh, this is not a passage that we often read, but to put this into context, this happens immediately after um, Mount Carmel, where, where uh, he calls down fire from the heavens that consume even the stones of the altar, uh, comes after that, and right before he goes to the mountain of the Lord and famously encounters God in a quiet whisper following a, well, conflagration, an earthquake, and a windstorm. It reads as thus, and you can join along in your pew Bible if you wish to. It's on 255. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets of Jezebel's prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that one of them. Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. So he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some uh, bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days, 40 nights, until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Blessed is the word. What do you do when you feel like the world is falling apart? Maybe you engage in something that's really healthy for yourself, like taking long walks, or calling up a friend, or seeing a therapist, or engaging in some kind of physical activity. You know, I'm talking a lot about, about loss and depression today, so I might bring up Sophie quite a lot. But when, I lost, when we lost Sophie, I can tell you I threw myself into gardening. And I built a first raised garden bed and spent a lot of time outside checking in on it. Hopefully you avoid the more destructive habits that often take place when people are really lost. 
you know, looking for solutions that end up harming our psyche, our soul, and our bodies. You may also seek a set-aside place, a space that is separate from your norm. I know I do this. It's called a liminal space. Liminal is, is, is it means an area that sits between other areas, marking a difference in space or time. For instance, the beach is a liminal area marking the edge of land and water. So is the threshold of a door. Or you can even talk about, you know, an airplane is a liminal space, an area that exists in the air between two landing points. Or a bridge. I've even heard it described that life itself is liminal. After all, it is a journey from birth to death. I will say, and I can't back this up with any biblical things, this is just pure experience from being at a few, a few, uh, a few deathbeds, that there seems to be a liminal space right at the edge of our lives where the visible, where the living are both visible, uh, to the person who is passing, both the living and the dead are visible, a kind of edge life that we get to exist for for just a moment. For me, when I am sad, there is one particular space I always tend to seek out. It is stairwells. Not 100% sure why. I've got some theories. But whenever I'm really sad, you can generally find me sitting on a stair somewhere. Between floors, between where we exist. We never live on a stairs. The stairs is merely an area of conveyance from floor to floor. But for some reason, when I'm really sad, I like to exist between them. I'm not the only person who does this. Lots of people seek liminal spaces. You know, there is a reason why if you watch a movie and you see some guy just hanging out on a bridge you probably know that he's upset, that he's sad, that he's not happy. I mean, how often do you ever see that when, you know, somebody's hanging out on a bridge in a movie or a show or anything, and they're, they're right? Well, never. And unless they're like teenagers and they're throwing stuff off the side, and that's a different thing. That's sad for everybody else. My guess is that we seek out physical liminal spaces when we are in an emotional liminal space. That is, we are stuck in this space between what was expected, what has been, what we want, and what is going to happen now. Sometimes this happens out of destruction, the loss of a loved one, a marriage falling apart, learning some bad news about our health. It forces us into a door frame where we can look forward into the future that we had not expected, but we haven't quite pulled our foot out of the old room where everything was still okay. So we seek a physical liminal space to reflect what's happening inside. Even positive liminal spaces sometimes force us to that. Graduations, marriages, moving to a new house, it can often bring about feelings of sorrow and loss 
Though we may be excited, we recognize that nothing is going to be the same anymore. And we're not quite ready to close that door behind us. When we talk about liminal spaces in the Bible, there's one that's a little different than what we experience today. In fact, I even did, you know, you can do these, these searches in the Bible, you know, look up every time this, this word or that word appears. And, and so I looked for bridges and doorways and gates, and they're almost always conversations of, about, you know, opening the gates to the glory of God or things like that. No, in the Bible, the liminal space is one that honestly has existed a lot longer in the human psyche than the idea of sitting on the stairs or going and standing on a bridge. It's one that's universal. It's the wilderness. I mean, we live in a fairly tame world at this point. I mean, yes, we have, you know, we actually have a national park right down the road. We're pretty lucky in that. But you know what? Most places in the Cuyahoga Valley National Park, you get cell phone service. There's, you know, trails. I, I grew up in a state forest, and I knew I would never get lost because all I had to do was head in a straight line in any direction and within anywhere from you know, a mile to five miles, I was going to hit a road. Didn't have to worry. You know, we're, we're completely unlikely at this point to encounter a mountain lion, maybe a bear, but frankly, if you're afraid of black bears, then I got to let you know black bears are not that scary. Just look at them and yell at them. They're pretty friendly. Not really. Don't, don't, don't. They're not friendly. Take that back. But they're not that scary. You're not likely to encounter some bandit hiding out in the woods. You're not likely to encounter foreign raiders. You are more likely in this world to die because of your lifestyle choices or some other illness or a motor vehicle or even just choking on food. In the wilderness, there's really not a lot of danger anymore. Yes, few exceptions, but generally going out in the woods, you're not going to end up being like uh, Brian Robson from, from Gary Paulson's The Hatchet. There, I'm pulling up a book some of you read back in high school. Very few places are as dangerous as they once, I mean, very few natural places are dangerous as they once were. But for most of human history, the wilderness was that dangerous liminal space. Traveling away from homes and fields of human habitation was a step into a world that was feel, filled with real dangers as we think of them today. You know, worldly dangers like bears and lions and tigers and snakes and cliffs and all that fun stuff. Oh my. But also with otherworldly dangers, spirits, magical entities, monsters were as real to them as the actual animals that roamed the earth. Humans couldn't survive there on their own easily. They needed a lot of tools. They needed skills. They needed luck. And more often than not, they needed a small community at least to support them. Like the Israelites, they needed God to get through. After all, what is the exodus, the journey from Egypt to the promised land, but a liminal space, a time of transition, of change, 
from being enslaved to freedom, from, being, from serving a self-proclaimed God-king to the actual king of the king who is a god, from being a people without a way of living to those who had a book, the Torah. In the liminal time and space, it was only through their reliance on God that they could travel and survive in the wilderness. But the Exodus is a bit of the exception in terms of whether the wilderness is a good or bad place in the Bible. There's a few others, but generally it's too dangerous to go into. For most people, they just avoided the wilderness at all costs. It was a place where only the truly desperate went, those who had to care for sheep, those who made a living by hunting. Hagar was, ironically, an Egyptian slaved to a Hebrew. She was the servant of Sarai, given to Abram as a concubine to provide him with an heir, which she does when she later gives birth to Ishmael. While she's still pregnant, though, Sarai begins to feel threatened by her presence. She begins to think that this slave, this Hagar, will take her position as the head lady of the house because she will be the biological mother of the heir. So Sarai is cruel, so cruel that Hagar decides it is a better bet to run into the wilderness. Imagine this, especially ladies who have been pregnant, running into the wilderness, into a land where you will survive only off what you can gather and hope that you can find water. A journey to somewhere else. That was better for her than staying. So she runs away. And she's stopped by the side of a spring by an angel of the Lord. And the Lord sends her back. Come back just a little more. Now, of course, later, Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah, um, and Isaac is born. Hagar again finds herself in the wilderness, this time with her son, who's probably a young man at this point. But this situation is far worse. She's been driven out. There is no turn. There's no chance to return. The last time she found herself in an area that at least had a spring, a source of life in deadly wilderness. But now she's in the desert. The water skins are dry. So she tucks her son, who is a young man, as I said, under a bush so she doesn't have to watch him die. And she goes off. She finds her own bush. And she cries. Now, we aren't told what kind of bushes they're actually crawling under, but today I'm going with the broom tree, which is pictured right there. It looks like a broom. It provides a lot of shade in the wilderness. So she sits there, absolute despair. She has been abandoned to die. Her son has been abandoned to die by his own father. 
Any promise of what might have been has been dashed upon the rocks. When she ran away last time, at least she found a spring. And there she was told by the angel of the Lord, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. She had met God. She is the first person in the Bible to give God a name. She calls God Lahai Roy, the one who lives and sees me. She is the first person to give God this name, and she realizes that God doesn't see her as less than human, that God doesn't see her as a piece of property, as a slave, but as a person, the God who lives and sees me. But now she's been abandoned again. This God doesn't seem to be seeing her. Perhaps God only had use of her while she was pregnant with a disposable but possible heir. And now that there was a true heir, she was of no use. So she was, well, disposed. Have you been in that space? When the value you held for yourself has been completely stripped away. When you realize that you are nothing but another cog in the machine of the business. When you discover your relationship with someone was far more important to you than it was to them. Have you found yourself ostracized from a group that you thought was your family or your friends? Hagar understood this. Hagar had given up hope. But a funny thing happens when we step into liminal spaces. We step part way into the other world. We aren't quite in one. We aren't quite in this. And it is a world that always seems to exceed expectations. Now we were promised in Matthew 28, 20 by Jesus, and surely I will always be with you to the very end of the age. Now, this is not a new promise. Jesus is just, well, bringing up something that was true since the ancient times. Hagar, weeping in the wilderness, finds herself comforted again by an angel who reminds her that they have not been abandoned, that God's promises will always come true, and that she continues to be seen. And God opens her eyes to a well. And she and Ishmael are saved. And the promise of God that Ishmael will become the father of a great nation comes true. Another case, Job. Perhaps the single most depressing story in the entire Bible. Job doesn't actually go into the wilderness. Actually, instead, he's hanging out in the ash pile of his former home, covered in open sores, which he has been scraping clean with a pot shard. None of this is sounding pleasant, right? Oh, did I mention that all of his children are dead, all of his property is dead and burned and gone? And on top of that, his wife told him to curse God and die. Oh, wait, it gets better yet. Three friends come out, and they see what has happened, and so they do the most natural thing one does when your friend is in this kind of situation. 
They argue theology and philosophy with Job and tell him it's all his fault, and they even sit there and hypothesize about the possible secret sins that Job must have committed for everyone to die. By the way, do not follow their examples. It should go without saying. There's actually, if you read the book of Job, it is a large theological, philosophical argument between Job and his three friends. And by the time you reach chapter 30, Job is done with them. He has proclaimed again and again his innocence. He is struggling to understand what has happened. And he has finally given up on convincing them of anything. So instead, he takes his case directly to God. And he talks about how he was once loved and respected. But now since his fall, and this is from Job 30, but now they mock me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. Of what use the strength of their hands to me, since their vigor had gone from them? Haggard from want and hunger, they roamed the parched lands in the desolate, uh, desolate wastelands at night. In the bush they gathered salt herbs. Their food or fuel was the root of the broom bush. They were banished from human society, shouted as if they were thieves. They were forced to live in dry stream beds among the rocks and the holes in the ground. They brayed among the bushes and hundled under the undergrowth. A base and nameless brood, they were driven from the land. It's not a great group of people. Job's actually echoing in here Psalm 120, this broom bush as a symbol in Hebrew culture of a place of absolute desolation. You didn't find it growing in people's front yards. You found it only in the places where there was nothing else. It was a place of true desperation. The roots, by the way, are basically inedible. They're extremely flammable, but basically inedible and would make you extraordinarily nauseous to eat. These are people who are forced to live in that liminal space at the edge of the wilds because of the choices they had made. Job, who has done nothing wrong, is below even them. Sometimes bad things happen and we never get a satisfactory reason. A loved one taken away, a disaster that destroys our home, or a disease that pops up out of, well, basically nowhere. And what are we to do? What are we to think? The book of Job offers a solution, I guess, by, well, reminding us that we're humans, and humans don't get to see the full picture. We may not understand why things happen, and that's okay. I find better comfort in Jesus' words, though, to Peter in the Gospel of John. This is 1821. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. This, of course, is a foreshadowing of what will become Peter's life, that he will undergo a lot of tragedy and eventually end up, at least according to legend, being crucified upside down in Rome. However, 
It is through this tragic life that he leads, through these struggles, just like Paul and the other disciples. It's through these struggles that they bring more people into the gospel, that they offer hope to a hopeless group. Our sufferings don't always make sense. We may be sitting in the ashes of our past life and fail to understand why, but perhaps our faith our compassion, our ability to learn to walk despite, maybe that will serve a greater good. I know that losing Sophie has made me a better dad, a better husband, a greater Christian, a better person in general. Though, and I will say this very loudly, I cannot claim this with every tragedy. Last but not least, one more mentioning of a broom bush which, of course, was today's story. Elijah, the great prophet. Elijah, whose name means Yah, as in Yahweh, is God. He's the one who proclaims the droughts. He's the one who is cared for at the stream in the wilderness by God and by the ravens. He is the one who goes and makes sure that the widow's uh, pots and um, jars are always full and brings the widow's son back from death. The one who, as I said earlier, calls fire down from heaven. Holy moly, fire down from heaven. So strong is his faith to consume not only the sacrifice, but the wood, the water, and the stones of the altar. But he is threatened. And he runs. Why? Everything he has worked for is fallen apart. Have you ever been in that space? Where your life's work where everything you have been planning, everything you had been doing is wiped away, or perhaps everything you believed in has been shown that is not worth someone else's time. You know, we, we as Americans especially are really good with kind of wrapping our identities up with who, what we do. I mean, how often when you meet somebody, the first question is, so what do you do? Elijah would tell you, yeah, I'm a screw-up prophet. At this point, he is what he would say. I'm the screw-up prophet who brought fire down from heavens and I am running for my life because it didn't change a thing. He is so angry and upset about everything that has fallen apart that he lays under this broom tree and tells God, I am ready to die. Take me. There is a level of grief. I love God's response. I love God's response because it's something I have to do with a four-year-old. It's something we forget to do for ourselves. Step one, he lets Elijah take a nap. Step two, he gives him a drink of water and some snack. Step three, 
lets him take a nap. Step four, gives him some more snack and water. It's hard. It's hard when we hit the wall and everything feels gone, desperate, destroyed, as if everything we had done in our lives was completely useless. God's response to you in that moment is not get up and keep going. It's not push through. It's not, you know what? Put in another sleepless night tonight and you'll get this figured out. It's have a snack, take a nap. Care for yourself. one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Suffering is hard. That's why it's called suffering. And so we try to find ways to deal with it. Often, as I said, we seek those liminal spaces. We seek those edge spaces where maybe, maybe things can be a little different because we're half-stepped out. Maybe it can be better. But I'll tell you when you reach them. Remember these three things. One, God's still with you. No matter where you go. You are not abandoned. You are not unseen. You are watched over and cared for. It's okay to cry. Number two, you may never know why, though. You may never know. That answer, you can come up with solutions. Maybe it's God's plan, you'll say to yourself. Maybe you'll say to yourself, maybe something I've done. I hope you don't say that. Maybe you'll say it's just the ways of the world. But even if you cannot find the answer, remember that you can take what you have gone through and use it to help, to help yourself, to help others. Because I can tell you any suffering you that happens to you in this world is not a new one. We've all lived through them. We all eventually live through the passing of our parents. Through the passings of brothers and sisters and friends, we all eventually live through disease. We all experience unique and different tragedies, every one of them painful. But also at the same time, every one of them experienced in some way by everyone else. So we have the choice of what to do with that. And last but not least, be gentle. Be gentle with yourself. God does not expect you to keep pushing through at all times. God does not expect you to be Superman because you aren't. None of us are. So be gentle with yourself. Be kind to yourself. Take 
a nap. Which sounds gorgeous right now. <laughs> Take a nap. Have a snack. You got that secret box of chocolates in the house? Have a piece. Or those Oreos hidden in the back corner where the kids can't see them. Or maybe that trip down to, like, I really love twisted tomato pizza. I'll go down there and get a slice of twisted tomato. You know, do what you need to do to care for you. Watch your favorite movie, play your favorite game, read your favorite book, have a nice walk with someone. Step out of this world into that liminal space and give yourself permission to heal. God will watch over you. God will make sure you got your bread and your water. God will remind you you can take a nap. And when you are ready, when you are ready to make the journey to the next place, because you know where Elijah goes next? He goes to meet God face to face. And when he is there, he tells God, God, this is everything on my plate, and I cannot help it. I am angry and mad and sad and depressed, and I am not a happy camper. And God says, you know what? I'm sending you back into the field, but you're not doing this alone. None of us are alone in this journey. There's always others to help. And God's always putting them in our ways. So, when you enter the liminal space, when you enter that space where you have one foot firmly in this world and one foot not so firmly there anymore, remember you are not alone. You are cared for. Remember when it's time, you can step all the way through the doorway and into the next part of your life. Whenever I do a sermon like this, I, I come up with this word I like to use a lot, like liminal. It's, it's a great word in general. But I also like to do it the same way I, I remember last year around Halloween, Thanksgiving time, I talked about pumpkins. Because I want you to think about these things regularly. Because guess what? You're going to have a whole bunch of liminal spaces in just a minute. Worship is a liminal space between the beginning and the ending of the week. They might go through doorway, through a doorway, down steps if you go out that side, through a doorway, into your car, which is a space between here and home. Think about this. Think about how you're stepping from space to space, how you're not alone in any one of them. And when you enter into those really hard liminal spaces, those moments of depression, of sadness, when you are experiencing loss, don't forget you're not alone in that liminal space either. May you be blessed in your comings and your goings. Amen.